Um, we're going to finally call Michael to the carpet because it, it happens so infrequently on this show that I, I have to quibble with. So it, it's been a pattern of ours that Michael will throw in a temporary title for an episode <laughs> and then and I will make it better, you know, oh. breathe in a, another perspective on things. <laughs> But by and large, I don't know why it is that on Courtney's episodes are the ones that I wind up leaving Michael's working titles in place. And thus we get Feed Me Seymour from last week. <laughs> um, Michael, I'm proud of you because I, I think you inspired me. So when I deliver the love food edits, I have now been giving my own titles. And they kept the first title that I ever pitched for them. Nice! Yeah, <laughs> you get that certain like gratification of being like, my creativity is actually worth something. It's gratification nice. on gratis. I yes. feel like it's the only true way that you can do an editorial pitch organically. <laughs> yes. Yeah. Yes. And so I, I mentioned that also is to say that Michael is now elected in his editorial fervor to keep in all of my throat clearing, my can opens, uh, any general noise from within the house. Oh and God. I, I appreciate hearing just middle of an episode of me just going. <laughs> I thought I got them all. It, it was it's been a struggle with that. Like, I can I, understand. Oh. Michael, you've been doing this for so long now that if you're not on autopilot, then you're too stressed of a person. So. This that is, was I think, the problem. I, I got off of autopilot for that oh. episode, for last week's episode, and I think that is the worst for it. Gotcha. Shame. <laughs> what you, you start thinking about it. Yeah. But, then uh, I'm like, every but, single mouth noise. But apparently I miss some, so I don't even know what I'm doing anymore. Yeah, quality control <laughs> that even the Trump administration can trust, and that is season Ooh. four here <laughs> at By the Eternal. Behold. Behold. <laughs> it's the Disinformed Podcast. I'm Shane. I'm John. And I'm Michael. And we're uh, going to send a shout out to our fallen sister this week. Courtney, we miss you. We love you. Uh, we're excited to get you back later, but uh, understandably, life happens sometimes. Yeah. Shane, did you see that uh, Last Pod started, or they're teasing that they're actually filming their actual tape at like when they're making the actual episodes now? Actually, um, making the actual episodes actually oh, they actually Indeed. actually so they they have they have side stories which they've been filming and releasing mm-hmm. on patreon um but they posted an 11 minute clip on youtube of the most recent episode and straight up so it's ben kissel in a room and henry and marcus mm. they don't show this have an animated head in the middle because he's in new york and they're in la okay. uh henry zabrowski is for all visual purposes naked yeah Hot. Yeah, he records so, sans pants. It's I mean that is check. like the podcaster. All of, us, all of us could technically be naked. Uh, <laughs> Who's to say I'm not? He I could be touching my tiny shirt. little it's wiener. Just cut off at a, at the midriff. Funny that you say that because yes, it, it, as I mentioned previously, <laughs> I did get a couple episodes where I put on a dress shirt and just buttoned the top two buttons <laughs> and then just choloed it out from underneath. So yeah, it, I'm I'm prone to doing that. There is something about like max comfort in your home, like mm-hmm. yeah. you're, that is a perfect illustration of how I live in my house of like what is the like most least that i can wear uh before like it's uncomfortable for me or uncomfortable for people to be around me (laughs) yep the the only reason i am still wearing boxer shorts right now is that i get you know 
chastised for leaving ball juice on things. So I, I at least will Dude, be restrained enough. I didn't know that men could leave snail trails. That's oh yeah, it, it happens. When like, you're, yeah. when your taint is, is not fully furred, it, it just becomes a sluice way I and everything you... just dribbles out. I yeah. know that you said that you had a lot of pre-cum, but that's kind of a medical issue mm-hmm. at that point. Uh, do well, you not have a sweaty asshole, John, in Arizona? Inside. Uh, no. Actually, no. Uh, n- no. I think you're lying. If you're not sweating from between the crack of your ass in this you've state. You've never you've... had swamp ass? I su- no, I've had swamp ass, but I sweat more like on my back and my chest than I've ever done like lower. Like I've never had. Like- okay. Run around without your pants on and sweat and then tell me that you're not sweating out of your ass crack. I don't think the bar. Your, your like underwear that. is just picking it up. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I, I i know that, that, that's me indeed you have way. you got what the american dream dusty roads will refer to as a muffler baby it's back <laughs> down there i was making sure everything gets soaked up sopped up and nice and juicy sized try it out yeah. piss yeah. on me beat me um whoa <laughs> <laughs> don't mind I, if i do <laughs> plan to do both <laughs> uh happy happy the sandman is on netflix day for all those that celebrate uh, I have completed the entire first season. I have watched as, again, one, proof and I, of the joys of free time. I I nice. really really uh, enjoyed the first episode. Did it stay solid through the whole first season? Oh yeah, it, it follows I've, the that's what you know, it total like. scripted out for everything. Yep. Okay. Um, hold on. Let's put up an asterisk. Spoiler alert section uh-huh. here. Spoiler alert. Because I'm asking. Alert. I'm asking for a spoiler that I. N- pretty certain doesn't exist or i would have heard about it okay. um is in season one at all mm-hmm. yeah Fuck yes even but- i knew that and i haven't watched it yet but there's an asterisk okay oh because uh it's um don't spoil it michael don't that's say a fuck don't word. spoil funny- it michael don't why? say a fucking why word does it okay okay i'm not gonna say anything i've watched one episode michael i haven't and watched anything <laughs> but Michael, see, you and I are also Doctor Who fans in oh, a more progressive what? way than than John is. You know what, Michael? Can you just yeah? He bleep? He, he thinks of Doctor Who with a question mark at the yeah. end. Doctor Whomst. Um, Doctor Quiet. Whomstiv. Can you censor out the character name? Sure. So that we don't accidentally fuck people oh, yeah, over yeah, that yeah, don't yeah, yeah, yeah. watch yeah, a whole yeah, season yeah. of a show in like a week and a half. Which is the demographic that I fall into now, unfortunately. I want to binge things I'll so just, bad. I'll just replace your with that. Mm-hmm. Nice. So. Doctor I, whomsoever holds this hammer. <laughs> Dude, <laughs> I want to binge watch things so bad, and I try to, but I feel like every year so far, like my brain is getting more like jumpy, where it's like, all right, I've satisfied that need. Okay, now go do this other thing. And like you're trying to fit a lot of things into one day. Yeah, that's um, called ADHD, man. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, that makes sense. Yeah, because I was going to say, I can I can drill the fuck down. I read through 500 pages of a book I am hating right now. So, Dr. King? N- yeah, Dr. King. Uh, these things happen from time to time. Uh, Stranger Things, spoiler for some friends out there. It's not really. Um I have been burning through all of the Dark Tower tangential stuff, so I got <gasps> through Insomnia, which is, if you are a Dark Tower completionist, as much as, like, folks say, oh, you need to read this, you you need to read Insomnia. The entire really? book is a build-up to justifying a character in the, the Dark Tower saga, which 
If you don't already know, you you should. Can you so, tell me and then I'll censor it? It's uh Patrick. Okay. Oh, you told me this before. Mm-hmm. Wait, wait. The, Patrick the the Patrick Bateman. the guy yeah, Patrick, no, Patrick uh, Bateman, Danvers who Okay. You find out where he comes from and it's it's done in such a really beautiful way as to make the story not feel totally superfluous. But yes, Patrick Bateman. Yes, okay. yeah, American <laughs> like Psycho just, himself. Just just yeah, just Let jump him, in. You're letting that. him have it. I like it. Yeah. Try getting a reservation at Dorcia now, Roland. You <laughs> fuck. Hey, Eddie. <laughs> this is my absolute favorite of all of the Eddie Money material. But uh, anyway, long story short, too late. Um, when I was going through, I was like, well, the talisman is also on the list and I own it. So I haven't read it and I've had it for over a decade now. My brother, when he was working at the NAU bookstore, got a huh. cover torn copy of that and just gave it to him. He's like, Hey, you like Stephen King, right? It's like, yeah, sure. Why not? I have, I have problems with fantasy material one. So there's that fair. What's your but problem with fantasy? Fantastical. Fantastical. <laughs> The writing style is very different. So whereas like Melissa doesn't like science fiction at all and doesn't like the tropes, doesn't appreciate the way that it's typically approached fantasy to me in the way that people attempt to do sort of highbrow notions of weird creatures, characters, and then just these bizarre whimsical things that will happen. So a la a and d movie where it's suddenly like, I'm a cleric. I can't have sex with my girlfriend anymore. <laughs> uh, just stuff that comes out of the clear blue sky like a, a bolt mm-hmm. of lightning. Oh, okay. So um, it's Peter Straub. And King, oh, okay. uh, and they both collaborated to write uh, The Talisman and Black House. Uh, and so it is very much in the spirit of the Dark Tower series, and it is a total fantasy series where it's kind of a teenager who's breaking into an alternate reality. That's the easiest non-spoilery kind of description I can give, but it is very much 1970s, 1980s King, Oh. And it's all over the board, and the writing style varies really dramatically. And they literally fly a character over that it's like he must have just finished the stand and was still enamored with Tom Cullen. And he's like, I'm going to take Tom Cullen and turn it into a werewolf, and I'm going to call it Wolf. Because his his speaking cadences, he has this exact same delivery. He, he says, right here, right now, as opposed to saying laws, yes. So it's like, here's Wolf right here, right now. Sit with you right here, right now. Like, and you're I'll like, okay. Me. He wears biballs, but he's a werewolf. And it's, I just, there's some I, <laughs> aspects of this where I was like, I can't, I just can't. My brain's not going with it and I'm fighting it. So it's like trying to eat something you hate and you're just forcing it down. It's like, just swallow. You're not going to, uh, and then you vomit. And so I fought 300 pages, had like a two hour rant to Melissa about why I was so angry at it. <laughs> and then I was like, fuck it. I have to read all these books, right? It's the quota I'm forcing myself to get to. So I'm now. going to stomach it and just. Force it it's down. a 750 page paperback and you're and just I'm, anger fucking it yeah. i'm hate reading this book and i admittedly it gets better about 70 percent of the way in but even oh, then <laughs> i've it, like i've had people say oh it's really rough at the onset but then like it's my favorite book ever afterward and like it gets better it gets better and i was like it was a two-star book for me <laughs> For like the first sixty percent, like, and then it kicks up to a three to star book. Oh man, the pain so. is worth it. 
So <laughs> I, it's mostly again the the weird completionist thing. But then I was like, I was already reading it. I might as well just get it over with, and then I'm I'm done. I can mark it off the list. But uh, there's a sidebar for you for all of the times that I just you know hold Stephen King up as having you know no faults and can do no wrong. There are exceptions, Cujo <laughs> being the major one. But yeah, this one uh, and Tommy Knockers, indeed. Tommy Knockers, at least though, I was still compelled enough by the storytelling. But this has the same problem that i typically encounter with pet cemetery which i hate the characters oh and there's not a lot of redeeming characteristics so as we were talking about for the mr mercedes series like where you can get attached to the characters and there's a reality to it that's visceral enough that you're like oh i relate to this it resonates with me there's nothing about this story that resonates and it's just weird for me but you know yeah if you can't get if you can't get into his characters for a book it there's because that's his main strength is characters mm-hmm. like he sets up characters if you can't get into any of them or root for any of them it makes it very hard to read through naturally yeah so uh there's our sidebar for the, uh, the oh, beginning yeah. of the show and i did this specifically because i know that this has the potential to be a very short topic if we don't get off hand so well, um, i'll be on hand i'll kay. use two hands oh they call me Thank dead you. hand Ooh, well mm. You're a gab hand if you do. But uh, for those of you who are 20 minutes into an episode and blissfully unfamiliar with what we do here, <laughs> there's actually typically <laughs> we, uh, we delve into random esoteric topics, and in the course of explaining them to one another, we lie about them. But uh, it's incumbent upon the co-hosts to try to ferret those lies out, separate the fact from fiction as we listen, and call them out. Scream posse, if you will, whenever you notify one. But even if we don't get them in the course of the show, the presenter will explain to you what was fibbed about by the end so you don't leave disinformed. But uh, when I was coming up with this week's concept, I went, I'm going to throw Michael on his ear. Specifically. Oh, God, I love it when you throw that little bitch on his side. Indeed. No, it's on my side. It's my ear. So Michael's specific. specific pitch all the way back oh, no. 156 episodes ago was that we you know he was stricken by a story told to him by his boss who was very well informed on a matter and and Michael trusted his expertise because he wasn't as versed in the topic that was the conceit of the show is that we would speak in an impassioned manner presenting something we ourselves are familiar with and that the co-hosts probably are not to varying degrees of fanfare. Are we talking yes about or wrestling? No? So, uh, yes, I'm going to talk about professional wrestling this evening. Oh, my God. <laughs> and you're going to have no clue what's happening. And I'm sure that uh, you're, you're just going to hate me all throughout this. But uh, we're, we're going to, you know, delve into my disinformation playbook, if we will. To recount a tale so stupefying that your jaws will metaphorically unhinge in amazement once you hear it. So, there are ten lies this evening, gentlemen. Oh, you weren't kidding when you said you were going to you know, make up for that. Uh-huh. Ooh. I knew Courtney had a windfall last week, so I was like, here we go. I'll, I'll make up for it. I'm, I'm prepared. So, are you prepared? I'm mm. never prepared, even when I'm ready. Okay. Yeah. I was going to show you a couple things just for context, but I think you'll probably be able to believe me. And then if you're interested enough afterwards, I won't just beat you into watching things. But um, 
I've long noted over the course of explaining things and my own passions, as we've just illustrated through a Stephen King discussion, that I am an avowed devotee of the circus environment surrounding one of the great American pastimes, professional wrestling. Yeah, it is known. It is known, yes. However, the aspect that particularly ensnares my interest these days, uh, as opposed to when I was, you know, seven and wearing underoos, is, of course, the work of amateur raconteurs recounting their array of experiences working in the business, specifically over the period of their employment. Chiefly, I'm referring to mostly in skill and hilarity, a former wrestling manager, promoter, commentator, trainer, author, historian, and podcaster, one Jim Cornette, who is, by Melissa's own admissions, one of my spirit animals. <laughs> <laughs> so you got you got the uh, um, Venus flytrap is your spirit plant, and now mm-hmm. Jim Cornette is your spirit animal. They they are both very garishly colored and uh, tend to ensnare things, strangely enough. But yeah, we'll get you guys, there. Uh, you guys look like you could be cousins, you know, if you had hair. I, Oof. I mean, I guess. Um, we'll go with it. Oh, never mind. No, actually, I take it back. He kind of looks like BTK. <laughs> I mean, he doesn't even have a mustache. Are you saying I look like BTK? Because that I would go with. No, I'm saying that you definitely could have or have killed people. Who, and Jim Cornette. <laughs> and Jim Cornette looks like he's already behind bars for killing people. Well, Jim Cornette has tried to kill people. This is documented. Uh, he tried to run a gentleman down with his car in the great streets of Louisville, Kentucky once. I'm seeing uh, the resemblance between you uh-huh, two. Uh-huh. Uh-huh. He, he attempted to beat somebody to death with a bat. Uh, he's very prone to wielding the old Louisville slugger, which is actually one of his nicknames. Uh, <laughs> is and that so bullshit? Th- no, that he is actually called the Louisville slugger or the Louisville lip, depending upon who you're talking to. Okay, okay. So uh, the reason that I broached this is, one, because if you ask me silly questions like this, I can riff for 10 to 20 <laughs> minutes on stuff that no one cares about. But two, also because, again, I'm talking about something that I'm excited about, and we'll see whether or not both of you hate this. <laughs> but the flagrantly foul-mouthed, loud, obnoxious, and garishly clad cornet is widely considered one of the greatest managers in the history of the profession due to his extraordinary verbal dexterity and extensive, often obscene, vocabulary. If you listen to any of his promos, particularly these days on his podcast, the man rants, raves, and is very colorful And as far as his language goes. And he actually has a podcast. He does. Yeah. It is called the Jim Cornette Experience, and then there's another one that is called the, the Corny's Drive-Thru, where uh, they answer fan questions. Joe Rogan already did it. Uh, actually, they were doing it before Joe Rogan's show, I think. Or Rogan's right about the same time, because they've been uh, around for quite some time here. Do they cross but, in the same circle somewhere? I sincerely doubt it. Uh, yeah, one's MMA, one's, you know, WWE. So, I was going to say, they imagine. have had some wrestlers on the Rogan experience, but uh, different. So, I'm discussing Cornette specifically, both because of the story I'm about to detail for you, which involves him directly, and also because of the severity of the situation was such that it warranted inclusion in instructional law textbooks to this day, in particular in the great state of West Virginia. Really? Yes. This is a warning label story? (laughs) Pretty much. So you're not going to need much inside knowledge of the lingo, the machinations of matches, or even general understanding of the industry itself in order to follow along and appreciate these anecdotes. So just sit back, relax, and enjoy the lies, okay? 
Okay. So, it will go without saying that the violent theater of professional wrestling was a passion for myriad Americans dating all the way back to the 1920s. Uh, in, and in fact, longer than that, but really in its current incarnation, it started to kind of formulate or coalesce around that time. Uh, fans have packed stadiums, auditoriums, high school gymnasiums, and even bingo halls across the country to watch muscle-bound and spandex-clad gladiators pummel one another into submission, generating millions and now, technically with WWE, billions of dollars in revenue for the various promoters of the sport throughout the decades. Did they really do matches in high school gymnasiums? Yes, depending and- upon the size of the promotion. Mm-hmm. And bingo halls? Bingo halls. Um, bingo halls. Was... Bingo all the way. Shaking my head at you for that one. <laughs> oh, no. Uh, yes. Shriners auditoriums. Like, they're, they're all across the board. There is huh. no venue too small to host a wrestling show, particularly if it's an independent show or what Jim Cornette would term an outlaw mud show. Oh, okay. I thought you were saying specifically WWE. No. But just wrestling in general, because and there's a, a lot yes. more minor, like, le- not leagues per se, but... Promotions, yes. Yes, yes So yes. if you're only familiar with WWE and that product, I have got uh, a total inverse opposite coin for you for this episode. There is one YouTuber that I knew they primarily did uh, video game coverage, mm-hmm. but in their spare time, they were also in, like, minor sort of wrestling outfits as well. Okay. So like dressed up as minors? No, no, as in like little not literally, damn it. Fuck. Um (laughs) independent promotions. Yes, yes. Now funny that you mentioned that though, John, there is a promotion that is called Kaiju Big Battle where the wrestlers dress up like Kaiju. They will wear outfits (laughs) with tentacles, dress up like Godzilla, and they will have matches in a wrestling ring while dressed up like Kaiju. So it's not outside the realm of possibility. Um, just because that sounds very tangential, uh, Asher was recommending an anime and I watched the intro of it and I was like, I'll finish this later. I don't have time. Let's see what it's called real quick. You can edit this. Uh, Baki. Bak. Well, you do and you'll clean it up. All right. Which is also a cornetism. In case you were not aware, that is where I got that from. Oh. Oh, fuck. I was watching him. Oh, I was on Sopranos the other night. You're you doing ex- you'll clean it up? Yeah, yeah, yeah. It was on there, so I thought it came from Sopranos. I thought that's where you got it from, with Sopranos from that moment. I forgot to it's, text you. So Cornette is a purveyor of many Southern idioms, uh, many of which you will have heard me say at some point. Like, he can squeeze a nickel till the buffalo farts. Uh, I've you never know, heard slick, you say that. Uh, <laughs> I've never heard. Uh, slicker than cum on a gold tooth. episodes, I've never heard you say that. <laughs> Indeed. So... You know now my catchphrases. <laughs> it's I, I mean I say it all the time. It's tattooed on my ass. I don't know what the hell you have heard me say. It's right this. next to the Elmo tattoo. Indeed, uh, I, it's animal. Thank I'm you. Sorry. Show the yeah. respect it fucking deserves. Elmo. <sighs> so Albus? there are, however, a slew of pitfalls involved in the profession. Strangely enough, other than going out in your underwear to have another muscle-bound man bash you in the face repeatedly. Sounds hot. Not the least of which is the backlash of very vehement fans to the violent delights depicted nightly in the squared circle. So, 
I have an example here, which I mentioned we'll skip for the time being, but if you want to go back to it, where they show a riot in progress over the course of a show, and uh, Cornette is doing commentary explaining why it escalated into the situation that it was based on stories he got from both of the men involved. Okay. A lot of fun. Very interesting. For me, at the very least. But, barring that... We can say sans hyperbole that riots were a common occurrence in the sport, from the carnival booths of the 19-teens and 20s all the way through the late 80s, until, of course, Vince McMahon's World Wrestling Federation all but gave up the ghost on kayfabe, which was admitting to state athletic commissions of New York in particular that the outcomes of the promotion's matches were predetermined to avoid paying regular fees to the commissioner to license their athletes for competition. So this that the whole so like him and the it's, whole foundation of the building or the business in general is essentially working the match to be able to bilk the crowd into coming back and paying more. So folks vehemently ardently fought to reject the fact that wrestling was at all predetermined for Got years it. and years and years and years. So McMahon's the one who just pops the top off of this and goes like, ah, I can make more money if we admit it. it's just fake. It's spectacle. It's sports entertainment. But prior to this, this was a blood sport and folks treated it as such. So until that time in what the business refers to as smart fans, who are people who were aware of the machinations of the business itself or to those, the inner workings of the sport were laid bare. They were relatively small as an enclave of individuals that kind of existed in the periphery of the performers and were in their personal holding company. Other than that, it was protected to the death, essentially. Otherwise, the sport was basically viewed by the general public similarly to boxing, which was a legitimate athletic contest, which was occasionally fixed for betting purposes. By the mafia and the mob. Well, you're mob. not far off. If you do get back into the actual foundation, there is a promoter who got two of his uh, athletes together and said, hey, listen, we can make a significant amount of money when the two of you have a fight. But imagine if you have three fights. So it would be basically like going to uh, Conor McGregor and Floyd, Maid Floyd Mayweather and saying, hey, listen, you just made, you know, 10 to Millions. $50 million dollars on this one fight you did. Now imagine if we have some dispute about the finish and then we come back and you want to do it again. And then you split it. The guy who lost last time wins this time. And then you have a third fight to settle it once and for all, right? You're basically just printing money at this point. And that's yeah. essentially what the wrestling business is founded on is a couple guys yeah. figuring out we can make more money if we draw this out, as opposed to just having a legitimate contest, which can be very boring if you're just watching two people roll around on the ground for 40 minutes. And so then the style starts to kind of change and you want things to be more ostentatious and showy. So you're doing flashier moves that look like they hurt more, but you're actually protecting the person you're working with so that you're not hurting each other. It's a really like involved process. Yeah. But it's important to note that the sports exploitation of the ardent belief of the fans and attendees is what kind of drives us to the story I'm about to lay bare here. So we're going to cut to a show in Beckley, West Virginia on the night of May 29th, 1987. 
getting away from having too much preamble, we'll just say uh, Jim Crockett Promotions, which is one of the more famous promotions that was running sort of neck and neck with WWF at the time, in particular in the 80s. They were pretty stiff competition. Mm -hmm. Uh, They were presenting a wrestling card in this mountain town here. It's a mining town, actually, in West Virginia. Damn near Kilmer. Indeed. Speaking of miners, uh, oh, Beckley God. was actually <laughs> the Beckley's actually a regular stop or a weekly tour, which this is how the promotions made money back then. Is they had a set number of towns that they would go to every week and present a different card. So that's how you made money back in the day. It wasn't that you were trying to sell merchandise or even going through syndicated television shows. You were a spectacle that was brought to places by and large that didn't have sports franchises or other available entertainment so you could bleed money out of a state that you know for instance west virginia or tennessee is a big one because they didn't have anything other than college sports teams for a very long time you didn't get the tennessee titans franchise until you know into the early thousands so when you don't have any other form of entertainment and you want something to do on a saturday night you're gonna go down and watch the wrestling right and so live event income was really how these businesses thrived And people were very invested in the storylines, as you'd imagine. So there was local syndicated television that kind of helped to bring it, but they didn't ever have marquee matchups. They just had, like, the famous guy fighting a local dude in ill-fitting tights that he just pounded the bejesus out of. Is that true? Yes. They didn't start showing main event sort of matches, what we would consider as a main event match today, unless you went to the live show. So on the television, it was always Drek. So it was just enough for you to see the guys that you liked, and then they would tease the storylines. But if you wanted to see these guys fight, you had to go and see it live, which is kind of revolutionary concept at the time. And then, of course, McMahon kills it because now they want escalating (laughs) stuff for free, whereas you used to have to pay to go see it. And even better, here's the, the thing is you'd shoot one television program and you'd send that program to all of the outlying territories. So everybody got the television at different time frames. So you would have the same match with the same guys 14 to 15 times in a month because every town you went to, and sometimes two days or two times a night, they'd work on weekends. They'd do two towns. So you'd be doing the same match with the same guys, same outcome, and just be getting the crap kicked out of you by the same guy because the television got everybody so worked up for it that they're all paying to see the same match. Okay. It's now brilliant. Now hear me out. Brokeback Mountain. But with these, <laughs> can you see the can you see the script in your head? Because it writes itself. We could be rich. Firstly, I've never seen Brokeback Mountain. Secondly, Same. okay, uh, I've never seen it either. But it's Ang Ang Lee's really upset at you right now for besmirching his you know glorious art. Uh, good God, I can't seem to quit you. It's after like one of their like it's like a climactic fight, you know. <laughs> he's just holding him. He's like, I just can't seem to quit you. No, they're it's just like that laying look into each other's eyes on the mat. They're laying broken in the center of the ring and then one just turns to the other <laughs> <laughs> oh, oh, so that, that would fix the tie boy that really would you know what's even funnier <laughs> so then to get into this like I, I again stop me whenever this gets too granular but then 
if you had a guy in the territory, you would go out as though you were injured by one of your opponents. So uh, a famous one is that they had a guy who, who would jump off of a ladder and drop his knee across his other combatant's throat. This specifically happened with Grizzly Smith, who we'll discuss later on in the episode. And then he made it look like he crippled him, like he broke his neck. And then Grizzly Smith would disappear, right? But he'd go get a job with another promotion, and he'd go work for another six or seven months. And then when he was ready to leave there, he'd call the guy that broke his neck in the other town and say, hey, come over here. Let's do it again. And then that other guy gets a new <laughs> set of life because he's now the villain in that territory. Grizz gets an out huh. to go work at another location. Like, they did this all the time. So the business and, machinations are fascinating. And funnily enough, that That's is where wild. the term sticking my neck out for you came from. <laughs> Indeed. <laughs> And broke back mountain all in one <laughs> fell swoop. My neck, my back, my pussy, and my crack. Oh, okay. I, I thought you were just gonna say uh, broke back, broke back me, baby. <laughs> broke back me, baby. Ooh, so, wee. hashtag fumble fart. Uh, <laughs> so the Not southern you're doing it right. Now, the Southern Territories in particular contained very enthusiastic clutches of consumers, uh, specifically for a certain type of branded wrestling product. Um, Vince McMahon, while he was trying to expand nationally, took over a television time slot for Georgia, which had previously been occupied by Georgia Championship Wrestling. The folks practically rioted. The Southern folks were calling in saying, like, this is not our wrestling. It's not real. These folks are faking it. And I mean, because, you know, the WWF, it was mostly personalities. They call it most uh, more sizzle than steak, really. So the Southern wrestling style is very athletic, very visceral. There's a lot of blood because you want folks to feel invested in the contest as opposed to just like, oh, look at his muscles. He's awesome. So by the 1980s, wrestling was undergoing a pretty rapid and seismic change because of Vince McMahon's aesthetic versus what had heretofore worked in the industry. So we'll get away from that. But the old NWA sanctioned system of separate regional territory, territory promotions, which is kind of what we're talking mm -hmm. about here was collapsing because McMahon had syndicated television and was kind of taking over everybody else's territories by paying their talent to come work for him for more money. Um, so we'll, that kind of puts it in a very quick nutshell. Obviously there's a lot more nuance to this than I'm giving it credit for, but Jim Crockett promotions is one of the few national programs that had similar footing and was well known enough in the Southern territories that they actually drove Vince out. So, uh, they bought really? Georgia championship and his television time slot because the fans just rejected it wholesale. So huh. that gives you an idea of the mental state we're dealing with for the territory that we're about to go into. Jeez. And that's hotly contested. Indeed. So no one wanted any of the Vince McMahon fake wrestling. They wanted their blood and guts. They wanted people that were going to be locked in a cage and beat each other senseless. So. Thus it is on the night of May 29th that JCP was presenting an exhibition at the Raleigh County Armory to a sold-out crowd of 6,000 American red-blooded onlookers. Uh, the final or main event of the card featured a tag team match between the babyface or good guy tandem of the Rock and Roll Express. Go with me here. This is the 80s. And the heel or bad guy team of the Midnight Express. 
Are those names both bullshit? They are not. Those are both the actual names of these teams, and it was referred to as the Express Rivalry back in the day. And subsequently, there are a bunch of other people that took off of these names and tried to make their own teams. There was the Oriental Express. That is not my making. Uh, there or the Orient Express. <sighs> there was the Stop and Go Express. Like people started coming up with the most random shit based on this. But these are the progenitors. These are the two most popular teams at the time. Um, and in meaning that they drew millions of dollars for folks just watching this rivalry, and they were still having matches up until probably like five or six years ago. Wow. Yes. But uh, one member of the team of the Midnight Express, uh, Bobby Eaton, just passed away. So that's the only reason. But the the Rock and Roll Express are still a tag team right now. In their 70s, they're out having matches. So you can find these guys. (laughs) That is one. I almost want to see how how a fight like that turns out. Are they showing up on their walkers or their... Like motorized scooters, lit and just, fucking Whoa. retirement home. Yeah. Dude, these guys are spry, man. They're still doing uh, like aerial acrobatics. They're doing drop kicks and that stuff is in their seventies. No, there's no fucking way. I promise you. Actually, um, strangely enough, Jerry Lawler is almost cresting into his eighties, and he is still doing drop kicks. <laughs> it's ridiculous. Like, uh, oh yeah, God. we'll get around to it anyway. So. The Midnight <laughs> Express is comprised of Stan Lane, or Sweet Stan, and Bobby Eaton, known as Beautiful Bobby. And they were managed, of course, by the infamous Jim Cornette. So this feud is one of the hottest in the business during the 80s. It spanned multiple territories and several promotions. Uh, it is still listed as one of the most memorable programs in the history of the sport, and they were drawing blood. Uh, there is a very famous angle where the Midnights attack the Rock and Roll Express and they dropped Ricky Morton, one of the half of the Rock and Roll Express, onto a tennis racket, which is Cornette's weapon of choice that he takes with him. And they pretend that they rap- ruptured his larynx. And they did this by making him put a condom in his mouth full of blood so that when they dropped him across it, he would start spitting blood out of his mouth. He just bit the condom and then would start hemorrhaging blood out of his mouth. And people went riotous. There's footage of this. And the crowd is so loud that, like, you can barely compose yourself. Their own. Uh, The wrestler would take an IV, pull out some of their own blood, shoot it into it, and then put it into hot water so it wouldn't coagulate. Like oh. this is fascinating shit, but Damn. this is what, what they kind of, did. What kind for of the con? theater? Yeah, you know, was it a was it a Magnum? Was it a? Uh, they... It's one of those uh, goat skinned ones, you know, that Satan uh, endorses. <laughs> I guess what I'm trying to ask is, like, if they're inventing throating, did they actually get it down into? <laughs> they got it to a science. Con. He was a spitter, they not a swallower. Okay. It's noted. Yeah. Okay. We've seen it, but also you um, guys do know that is where throating came from. Yeah, indeed, the South. <laughs> yeah the wrestling not in the much South. Not, not much to do in kentucky otherwise <laughs> so beginning in 1984 specifically may the two teams feuded all throughout the remainder of the decade to packed crowds across the country in particular the two teams actually set attendance records in houston tulsa and oklahoma city making 1984 the most successful year in mid-south History, which Mid-South was another territory they were working in, which is where the feud originated. Gotcha. Uh, As well as making the Midnight Express and Jim Cornette national stars, a trend which continued as they moved on to Jim Crockett promotions, where we find them now. At this time, Eaton and Lane were uh, Eaton and Lane from the Midnight Express. I'll mention again, just to keep it clarified, because I know most of you have no idea what the hell I'm talking about. Uh, They were the National Wrestling Alliance World Tag Team Champions. 
as well as three-time NWA United States Tag Team Champions. As a manager, Cornette was known for his outrageous outbursts, colossal rants, and his ever-present tennis racket, as I mentioned previously, which he would often use to ensure victory for his team. The implication being, and something that was actually true to fact in most instances, that the racket was loaded. So he would cut out the tines and replace it with a horseshoe and a wrapped-up chain. This was necessary not only, one, to you know, show it on TV if they were, you know, winning the match with it. But he actually had to defend himself with this thing as he tried to get out of the arenas on a nightly basis, which I will illustrate. But he had to have this thing as a literal weapon to keep himself safe from people. Did he though? So, yeah. Yes. All those accolades where they were three times. Uh-huh. All true. Are... Okay. Not a okay. not a lie in the bunch. All right. It's very I, fantastical. I, yeah. Now, you'll remember that I did say this is the reason we're doing this is that you have there's so many things I could be lying about. I'm not going to make it that easy unless you know wrestling. I so, mean, that's fair. In which case, that's... there are people screaming again. Uh, there are not too many lies yet, okay. thankfully. So in any event, um, Cornette was at his best as a bad guy manager. He was a good guy for a while, but uh, fans loved to see the constantly yelling Cornette and his equally annoying charges beaten and humiliated. And that is ultimately the goal is that the bad guys will cheat to win, constantly undermine and prove that the baby faces, the good guys are much better than them athletically, but they have to resort to chicanery in order to win. And they do this often enough that the fans are ready and ravenous fully prepared to draw blood and often did like a number of guys got stabbed on the way into and out of the ring. This happened constantly. I'll we'll get into the story anyway. So long story short, too late. They were pretty routinely attacked by overzealous fans because they were screwing the good guys out of winning matches frequently to get to one big event, which it later on would culminate into pay-per-view events other than like okay. actual regional house shows. But we're mm-hmm. still kind of in the nascent stages of pay-per-view. We're right where the house shows were the big thing you were pushing towards, and this was one of them. So, back in Beckley, the Rock and Roll Express was declared the winner of this match in particular uh, during the May evening's card, despite the reviled Cornet and company attempting to use an array of underhanded tactics to try to ensure victory. The rock and roll was then escorted from the ring to their dressing room by the security personnel employed by the venue's contacted or contracted crew for the evening. Freedom security. Bear this in mind, because they're going to be important players as we go forward. Freedom! Indeed. Uh, it's important to emphasize this is also necessary because the rock and roll, which, as I've mentioned, consists of Ricky Morton and Robert Gibson, were seen as teen heartthrobs at the time, and I am not kidding. Uh, they were often assailed and repeatedly molested by female fans on their way to and from the ring. They had their clothing torn off of them. They had notable bruises. And as Cornette is famously, uh, noted as quoting, he said, the rock and roll had more sex on the way to the ring than most people had in their entire lives. Uh, you can also see this with, uh, the Von Erich family, uh, in, uh, mid or, uh, one of the Texas ones that slipped my mind. In any event, women would be grabbing at their hair and scratching them as they were walking through the audience because they were trying to kiss them as they were walking. Like, it's insane, just the volume. And uh, notably, at this time, the crowds were actually split, but actually were more uh, filled with female attendees than they were males because the girls were there to see the cute guys that they wanted to watch, right? 
So that was where they were making their money. So these screams at this time are notably different in pitch. Yes. Go watch some of this footage. I'll show you some of these matches. It is mostly women screaming. Oh, no, I believe it because my mom was one of them. She she was a big avid wrestler wrestling fan. That was actually her and my father's first dates. Was to a wrestling match. I think I've said that on air before. I feel like um, uh, it is known far and wide that your mom is pretty vocal. Yeah, she wrestles a lot. Yes, <laughs> um, but they made a lot of their money selling <laughs> photographs as well. Like they they were pin up idols. Essentially, they would take dirty little photos of themselves. It's a lot of fun. So the security <laughs> the was in fact. <laughs> These guys are noted for actually having been caught, uh, like, having throngs or harems of, of young women. Oh, that, God damn it. Yeah. So, <laughs> not shocking. They they actually did uh. say, while they were stationed in North Carolina with Jim Crockett, they would actually go into the office where business was conducted, and they would call up their girlfriends, or their the rats, as it's termed in wrestling, oh, along no. the road, and it, they would have some phone sex with their fans while they were waiting to film for the day because hey, it's downtime why not i mean that's true make a couple extra bucks i'm mm-hmm. jacking it here hey i'm jacking it. everybody's <laughs> jacking it in west virginia so thus the security is necessary one to protect the good guys from being molested and two to protect the bad guys from being molested Typically, however, the usual approach is to clear the bad guys out of the ring first, because one, you want the good guys to get the adulation of the fans and the adoration. You want, yes, and yeah. the villains, particularly if they've done something really dastardly or underhanded, need to get the fuck out of there, because there are guys who have been cut from stem to stern, like severe near death experiences from having been stabbed by fans. This they weren't doing; they weren't patting Ooh. folks down back then. And those so, are the people that grew up and then voted for Trump. The ones that stab people in a staged environment. Uh, Trump is in the WWE Hall of Fame for a reason, yep. friends. So, yep. so as Cornette indicates, this scenario was particularly problematic for he and his charges as they remained in the ring alone awaiting security personnel that was far from returning quickly. And thus, while they're standing in the ring, one of the spectators threw an aisle marker at the trio which we'll describe later, which actually struck beautiful Bobby on the neck and shoulder. Sweet Stan, then believing that the attendee, as named in the lawsuit, Roy Massey, was the one who threw the aisle marker, left the ring in pursuit of him. Oh, pardon me. Heavens. Sweet Stan then struck Mr. Massey on the left side of his face, fracturing the orbital bone for his left eye, as well as other facial bones with the blow. It's going to be hard for him to enter the beauty pageant without a face. He's Mr. Coal Miner, 1987, guaranteed. Um, It's also worth noting Massey, as documented in the legal proceedings, was a disabled coal miner in his 60s who stood five foot six inches tall and weighed approximately 149 pounds. Oh, no. Stan Lane, by contrast, is six feet tall and weighs approximately 245 pounds, and there was not an inch of fat on this man. He was pure muscle. I said the guy wasn't killed in one hit. Shit. Well, it was a near thing, friend. Yeah. So taking two. The situation was further exacerbated by the surrounding fans, who, of course, coalesced and attempted to engage the other Midnight Express members in further fisticuffs. 
And this is where the glorious storytelling ability of Mr. Jim Cornette is brought to bear on our discussion here. So I'm going to leave it to Cornette's description of events to provide us with the rest of the sordid story. So as Jim recounts the incident, real briefly, it's midnight in the rock and roll. We were in the main event of the evening, and so we were the last match, which is typically when people are going to act up, because if you're going to get thrown out, you've already seen everything, right? Exactly. And of course, there was some dispute in the decision, but the rock and roll somehow got the victory. And so when they rolled out of the ring, all of the security goes with them to take them back to the locker room. Now, we didn't have cops there. It was uniformed security, like rent-a-cops, right? Rent-a-security. And in most places, especially in Crockett Promotions back then, we had to have legitimate uniformed police officers. This was not the case this evening. So, they all go and leave us in the ring, and we're looking around. The building is sold out, and that's not wrestler exaggeration. It's the fucking depositions, right? Uh, And we can't get out of the ring because the people have surrounded the ring. So all of a sudden, I look around, waiting for some sort of security to come and get us, and Stan screams, look out! And we see this giant wooden aisle marker about three feet high, shaped like an arrow, section C, fly into the ring. So as I turn around out of the corner of my eye, I catch this old man with his hand in the air, looking like he just launched a javelin, screaming with a very disturbed look on his face, and Stan saw the same thing. Now, Stan was closer, he was on that side, and so when the marker came in, it hit Bobby Eaton in the side of the head and then scraped all of his skin off and went down to his neck. So then Stan dives out, and I thought, oh shit, Stan jumped into the crowd in in Beckley, West Virginia with no cops, in swimming trunks, and is about to get knifed. Oh my god. So then I jump out what? because at least I've got the racket. <laughs> but Stan was quicker than a hiccup, so he'd gone over and drilled that old fuck right in the face, knocked him over two rows of chairs, and then runs back up to me. So we get back in the ring, and then finally the security starts coming back, and we go to get out of there, and there's this whole big hoopla. So I got charges filed on me after folks investigated the police brutality on the fans because this was really as violent, drunk, and cowboy of a crowd as I've encountered. Now, part of the angle that we had prior to this was the rock and roll beat us for the titles, which meant that I had to wear a dress to all of our matches for a month. So I've got my tennis racket, I roll out of the ring and grab it, and I've got on men's dress shoes, a pink floral dress, and a racket. (laughs) security finally surrounds us and we're attempting to walk our way back and once you get through the seats around ringside it's just a huge field of people just standing there so we had to walk through with no ropes no barricades no fuck all of nothing so i roll out and the security team yells move And they're all forming a human wedge around us, and so we're running. (laughs) But every time someone tries to grab me or Stan, one of the security guards has to stop and grab them or tackle them. So I'm losing bodies. And there's a lot more people than there are security. Jesus. (laughs) So by the time we make it from ringside to about 50 feet, I'm down to one security guard out of the six. And he looks at me with fear in his eyes, and he yells, Run! <laughs> Save yourself. So, so I've been Oh, sorry. Go ahead. I've been trying <clears throat> once again trying to get Becky to read the Dark Tower. <laughs> and I'm trying to find a uh, a good like YouTube video 
uh, to summarize the gunslinger in a uh-huh. satisfying way. Like I'm mm-hmm. trying to vet it because that's her hardest part is getting through just the gunslinger, which okay. I agree with. It's a really weird it's place. Pre plotting, yeah. Yeah. But drawing of the three, it's I don't even think is an arguable point. Like it's, it really just takes off and it's a fantastic book. I top You top, and I are it, dramatically it, different. I oh. hated drawing of the three and loved the oh. gunslinger, so I was oh. I was gonna say it draws you in. Yeah. Um anyway. But <laughs> um, Talisman feels very much like Drawing of the Three, where there's giant lobsters attacking oh, people. All of a sudden, there's a fucking door on the beach, and you open up, and you're inside another guy's head. You're like, okay, what, sure, this makes sense. Why not? What you described, that scene, and this is just for probably five people, and hopefully for the gal who saw us at Fan Fusion, l- listens to the show every now and again, because this one's for you, because I was uh, beaming about Dark Tower the entire time, as I uh-huh. want to do. Um Sounds like when Roland just takes out the town of Tull. Yep. Uh, it just yeah. sounds like a massacre. That is literally the metaphor I gave to Melissa when I was talking about this. Really? Oh, my yep. God. <laughs> so, Cordette then says, I start, run- I start fucking running through this vat of human cholesterol, and people are trying to hit and kick me. So I'm a helicopter in the tennis racket, right? I'm spinning it over my head as fast as I can, running as fast as I can, and they're hitting me, but I'm moving fast enough to keep from falling down. So as I broke through the people into the final home stretch, they start throwing cups of ice and beer at me, and then beer cans, just everything that's not tied down. Looked like a goddamn combat scene from World War II with me running back to the locker room. So then, all of a sudden, this guy runs and forward dives around a huge group of people over the crowd like he's fucking Superman, and he punches me right in the nose. Boom. Like, right square in the nose. And immediately, both sides just start squirting blood, right? He crossed my eyes. So Bobby and Stan have caught up, and they go for the guy, as well as the other guys from the locker room and a couple security guards are all coming out of the back. It's a giant scuffle. And then Grizzly Smith comes out. Now, for those of you paying attention, and this is where I'm going to get Michael back into the episode, Grizzly Smith is the father of the notorious Jake the Snake Roberts. Oh! So, noted for the fact that Grizzly Smith stands 6 foot 10 inches tall, weighs approximately 350 pounds. He's a big motherfucker. He's also a pederast, uh, allegedly. (laughs) Allegedly? Yes. But uh, Grizz was one of the individuals who helped to schedule folks. And, uh, you know, he went from place to place, was kind of overseeing the spot shows. So now Grizzly comes out and grabs two handfuls of this guy's hair. This is the person who punched Cornette. And he's pulling him back into the locker room and we're trying to rush out. But at this point, Bobby Eaton has gotten the racket that I dropped when I got punched. And he's trying to whack this son of a bitch in the head, but instead of doing that, he's just taking all of the skin off of Grizzly's knuckles. So now Bobby's oh, no. swinging and Grizzly's going, Bobby, goddammit! <laughs> so they pull all of us back through the overhang, through the doors, and we're finally away from the crowd. They slam the doors behind us, and here's Dusty Rhodes, who was booking for Jim Crockett Promotions at this time. And... I'm covered in blood now, right? And they hold me back because this guy's already lying on the floor and he doesn't know what the fuck's happening to him. So Dusty walks up and he fans the security guards out like he's Marshall Dillon or some shit. He's like, stand back, baby. 
<laughs> so I'm screaming my ass off at this guy. And I gave him some choice comments about his parentage, ancestry, personal habits, and predilection towards <laughs> fornicating small farm animals. And at this point, Cornette's attorney interjects in this interview, and he says, I believe you called him a black lung motherfucker. What? Because <laughs> he's a miner? Yes. Oh, and Because we're in West Virginia in the mining locales, it's a very popular epithet. And so, as Cornette says, yeah, that's funny. If you're from the area, look it up. So I swear to God, Dusty picks this fucking guy up and shoves him up against the wall. Now, this is a pretty good-sized guy, but not next to Dusty. And he was bigger than I was. So he says, so you want to beat up my wrestlers, huh? And he's trying to fucking punch the guy. But as soon as the guy saw who Dusty was, he's trying to duck down and cover his head. And so he's pushing his head up against the wall to prevent it. So Dusty pushes the guy back up against the wall, puts the guy's left hand against the wall, grabs his wrist and pushes it and says, Grizz, hold this, baby. So Grizzly Smith now grabs the guy's hand, pins it to the wall, and Dusty punches him in the face and drops him, right? As the guy's laying down there, Dusty gets up, and this night he wasn't wearing his cowboy boots, he was just wearing sneakers. <laughs> God damn it. And he wasn't on the card, he wasn't wrestling, but he wasn't in his gear. So Dusty stands with both feet on the side of the guy's head. Now Dusty is six foot two, two hundred and seventy-five pounds. It's basically me standing on the side of a guy's head, and he's pushing his Good face Lord. down into the concrete floor. And he said, wiping his feet on the guy's face, don't you ever come back to another of my shows and fuck with my people again. <laughs> so then he gets off the guy, gestures to the security guards, tell them, all right, take him out. And true to that, the way that they resolved shit back then, they just pick him up and dragged him to wherever the fuck they took him to. Okay. And of course, Cornette says, yeah, I'm sitting there spitting blood like, yeah, what he said. Fuck you. <laughs> <laughs> So the fallout of all of these events ultimately escalated until the case was actually heard before the West Virginia State Supreme Court with questions of negligence, due care, and brutality brought against both Freedom Security and uh, Detective Agency and Jim Crockett Promotions for the way that the event was resolved. The reason that this got so escalated is one Mr. Massey... Uh, who is the one who was accused of hurling the aisle marker, is the one who initially brought the suit. And then the gentleman who was dragged into the locker room and assaulted by Dusty Rhodes, one Vincent Russo, each sought to recover damages for personal injuries caused by negligence of the companies. So Cornette continues. The bone of contention came later on when not only did Mr. Massey claim that he was not the one who threw the aisle marker, but other people in the crowd began blaming it on adolescents who were acting up behind the guy. Now, Damn hooligans. the point is, did everybody gives depositions. What'd you say? Did they actually blame it on kids? Yes. Well, here's what happens. So... A bunch of people were deposed for this. I think it was in the tens of people, like they probably had 20 to 30 people they deposed for this, right? And nobody could agree on the number of matches that took place on the card. It ranged from five to 12, depending upon who was asked. Because they're all blind Jeez. drunk. And nobody could agree on the size of the crowd, nor where the marker actually hit Bobby, or if it hit Bobby at all, or if it hit Stan. Or if Bobby was it. even performing. Exactly. And nobody then faulted Dusty for the way that I and Russo was treated either. 
uh, or nobody faulted Dusty or I for the way Russo was treated. So the only major decision that came out of this, because the Raleigh County attorney or the Raleigh County Armory hired a security team that were not licensed, bonded, or trained. Oh, Hell yeah. shit. <laughs> so Freedom Security is basically thrown together by some Yahoo who had them sit down and watch a VHS tape on Securifying, which is why this whole situation <laughs> came to the head in the first place. And they had eight security guards present to subdue and secure a building of 6,000 people. Jeez. Wow. Two of them were actually stationed in the parking lot. <laughs> And those, yeah, fights out there. Uh-huh. So, needless to say, Crockett's insurance company eventually settled the matter out of court once they heard how grossly understaffed the event was. Uh, everything else grew out of that. For the record, Jeez. the individuals who witnessed the incident, none of them knew Mr. Massey, but all of them gave contradictory depositions. So, like I said, nobody could make heads nor tails what happened. The funny thing about this whole thing is, for Cornette's sake, it says his saving grace of how he was implicated initially. Both he and Bobby Eaton were also named in the lawsuit in spite of the fact that neither of them did anything. None, of, Neither of them hit anybody. Bobby's the one who got hit and Cornette got punched, but they were both brought in on the lawsuit for inciting the crowd. <laughs> okay. So they were. the claim <laughs> is that Jim Crockett paid them to go out there and make the fans upset, which technically he did. I mean, that's not a lie. Uh -huh. It's That's what he got paid for. But uh, because they were being deposed and they couldn't give up the business, they said, no, we're just out here doing this because we don't like these black lung motherfuckers. <laughs> <laughs> such a uh, choice of words uh-huh and so also stan lane and dusty Rhodes were named in addition to freedom security and jim crockett promotions uh bobby and Cornette were included not simply due to their affiliations with the event and the physical participants however as Cornette states the way it was explained to me at the time i said how did i get in this suit i didn't hit anybody i didn't press charges on anybody and they said well you cussed the guy out the no <laughs> yes really he's like what the fuck like how can he sue me for cursing him exactly. out and they said well there's a statute against vulgar and inflammatory language or fighting words as it is dictated in west virginia <laughs> oh, <no>. law <laughs> is that real words. i'm taking you to that court. is real <laughs> oh, this is God. why this is on the law also, books west virginia is fucked have we missed all 10 already no. at this point no okay. there's a couple more we, you've missed the first eight. Oh my fucking god. Jeez. And I've been so, swinging. <laughs> so now we're at the point. This is how bizarre these stories are, man. Like everything sounds like hyperbole. Um, Cornette was also alleged to have been instructed to try to incite violence by wearing the dress in front of a bloodthirsty <laughs> crowd oh of no. red blooded American you males. You should have known they wouldn't have liked the dress. I said <laughs> the skirt and the top, but you What's just even funnier? had to wear the fucking dress. Like they've they've made him dress up like they put him in diapers at one point as well. He had to carry a giant baby <laughs> bottle to the ring for losing it. Well, they shaved just, his head in front of crowds. That's just sex like, appeal. Yeah, indeed, twisted steel and sex appeal. So the loophole that got Cornette out financially was that everybody had agreed that he had been violently angry with both parties. However, everybody also agreed he had only spoken for about thirty seconds of time. All right. But every single one of the witnesses testified 
to him saying something different. So I was going to say, they actually agreed that he cussed him out for 30 seconds, but nothing else. Exactly. They didn't know how many rounds there were. Uh-huh. They didn't know who was fighting. They didn't know where they were. Yep. They didn't know what year it was. But they knew he spoke for exactly 30 seconds. What's even funnier about this is, so each one of them <laughs> said he said something different, right? And that's why the judge dismissed it, because he said, oh, nobody <laughs> could say this number of horrible things in 30 seconds, right? <laughs> Uh, I've seen you angry. I was going to say, now, anybody who has either seen me on this podcast or Jim Cornette give a promo, you know damn sure you could rattle off a number of profanities in 30 seconds. In it, fact, in- I think our 2020 like COVID episode starts uh-huh. with just an example. Oh, my God. That rant. Legendary. That, yeah, it, infamous at this point. There is a reason why this man's one of my heroes and inspirations, naturally. But um, so they also thought my causing a riot by simply cross-dressing in West Virginia was also ludicrous. But that is how Cornette managed to escape this incident unscathed, other than the nose, of course. Right, right. But uh, the adjudication all boiled down to Mr. Massey, who sued. And this is the only thing I'm going to continue to add here because it's so ludicrous that you can't help but just, you know, you have to shake your head. He sued... Because he claimed he was an ex-coal miner, as we mentioned, who had a 2% disability in a finger and a 3% disability in one of his toes. And he said that he was around 36% disabled already before Stan hit him, as Cornette says, with that fucking beautiful right cross, which broke his orbital socket, knocked his eye about a quarter of an inch back into his head further than it's naturally supposed to be in one shot. But then Massey also indicated in the lawsuit that he was suing on behalf of his wife for lack of physical consort with her. Okay, bullshit, bullshit, (laughs) bullshit on that. Um, but also I know that I'm like king throw an arbitrary percentage onto things, but like, yes. how is he calculating uh, <laughs> 2%? Yeah. He's lost 2% of his mobility. I can't, in that one I can't finger. bend this finger more than this. <laughs> I'm going to go downstairs like, and tell Becky that I'm also 36% disabled. Okay. <laughs> uh, it's just my left leg. 30, 36% more of the work. Becky, yeah. on account of the gout, I, uh, I'm i 36% disabled. I mean, I know I haven't had a flare-up in years, but 36%. You never be too certain. Indeed. Yeah. I wonder yeah. if I could still get medical moment. marijuana if I tried. Like, if I didn't live live in a recreational state. Mm-hmm. If I could use gout, like, with a doctor. Like, can you write me a medical weed thing? Because I had a flare-up two years ago. Yeah. It is the king's disease, John. So, obviously, you yeah. do need to get some form of restitution not to be off topic the fucked up thing i wasn't even eating meat back back then like they they say it's like from an influx of red meat wait wait you actually had gout yeah you had Uh gout yeah i had yeah oh not chronic now you're Uh, saying you so you weren't dating darth clitoris at the time because i would have thought that would have given you an an infusion of red meat. (laughs) plenty of meat (laughs) i i would have hoped that you knew the difference between eating and flossing (laughs) not with her i don't (laughs) oh no i dislodge a tooth you tried to floss with that thing anyway (laughs) blocked on everything anyway God damn. I was always alarmed when she brought the collar out to put it on the chain. I was just terrified. Let's make this house a tomb. And uh, on top of that, to stay on topic here, uh, this guy went blind and he couldn't have sex with his wife. And Cornette said, knowing the way she looks, I thought it would have made it easier. (laughs) 
<laughs> Yikes. <laughs> so, naturally, this is fascinating to me in particular, one, because of just the sheer ruckus, but also because it's the only court case involving professional wrestling at the time that had already made its way to the Supreme Court of Appeals for West Virginia. As a bit of a denouement here, I will tell you that one can only imagine the rumblings in the offices of the justices who saw this fly over their desk. Yeah, <sighs> so, geez. the Supreme Court found several material <laughs> questions of fact existed for a jury to decide, so they kicked it back down. Because they were curious as to whether there was sufficient security present in the building. There wasn't. <laughs> <laughs> but well, there was ample security in the parking lot, though. <laughs> Exactly. Oh, yeah, that parking lot was locked down tight. No fights. So, the West Virginia Supreme Court of Appeals reversed the grants of summary judgment and remanded the proceedings back to the Circuit Court of Raleigh County, West Virginia, before the matter was settled out of court by Crockett Promotions because they knew that this was beyond the pale. Uh, individual charges against any of the wrestling personnel, however, were dismissed in the settlement. And thus, this fun footnote in the history of the legal field is but a single day in the life of a professional wrestler, a field thoroughly seeded with similar stories, countless crimes, and enough debauchery to keep a miserable misanthrope like me amused for the rest of my meager life, and hopefully to amuse the throngs of you listening to this episode. And that is what I have for you folks for the evening. That was huh. a very fascinating and fun Short story with good background. Exactly. Yeah. Uh, yeah. And this, there are so many incidents like this. Cornette has a slew of YouTube things where he just details the worst riots that went on. Most of it happened in Mid-South because Louisiana is just an entirely different environment on its own. So he talks about some Texarkana things. Um, but interestingly enough, where the um, the swamp thing Alan Moore run takes place is all around the same area where Mid-South Wrestling was very prominent. And so uh, you get a feel for the type of clientele that they had <laughs> showing up at the uh, the matches. But uh, I know you gentlemen are not fans of the grappling, so I'm not going to beat you about the head and shoulders. No, but I mean, we did miss all 10. So yeah. uh, any, any follow-up stabs here before we Dude, finish up? I feel like I was swinging more than Negan. <laughs> and with a baseball bat, a Louisville slugger, if you will. If you will, yeah. Yes. So, no, I no, nothing. I got nothing. No. Okay. So, um, I, I did you dirty. Just a little bit. One big, oh, no, he did a number chunk. lie. Yeah. No, no number lies. Um, so, I was about five pages, no, nay, seven, seven pages into this episode before I lied. Wow. Um, so Jeez. the composite here is firstly, um, Cornette did have an angle with the midnight and rock and roll where he was forced to wear a dress. Uh, that wasn't this one. So, uh, that, okay. that didn't take place here. Uh, it, a little cheap, I know, but it, that is lie number one. So he was not wearing a dress during this particular incident. Uh, number two, uh, the breadth and depth of this particular riot was just Mr. Massey hurling the aisle marker into the ring. That is oh. all that happened this evening. So the rest of the story I have fused together from three or four different composite riots that Cornette was a part of, and I made them into one narrative. Mega riot? 
Indeed. So uh, that is where some of this gets into. So when he's saying that once you got through ringside and there's just a huge uh, throng of people standing, that wasn't the case. There were actually some barricades in, in Beckley at this point. But um, so the security team didn't actually make it back for them. They just had to fight their way back. Oh, which is even better considering. So they were punching Jeez. people. That's just the the one who was the most egregiously injured was the gentleman who they alleged through the aisle marker got at it, them. Got it. So the uh, number three lie is the guy who did the forward dive Superman punch and hit Cornette in the nose. That is from another incident that took place, but that did happen. Great visual. That is, it is a true story. It just didn't happen during this riot. So that Jeez. got flown in. So that's three lies. Um, Grizzly Smith was not here because Grizzly Smith, uh, was actually working for Mid-South Wrestling at this point. He did fly up to Crockett for a while, but Grizzly Smith was not present here. He was in Mid-South where most of the riots took place. Uh, so no Grizzly Smith here either. Uh, and so him having his knuckles bruised and beaten by Bobby Eaton swinging a tennis racket, that's another riot, another incident that happened. Uh, and now number five, Dusty Rhodes was not booking for, uh, he was booking during this time frame, but the other elements of the riot that I was describing were things that took place in Mid-South where Bill Watts was the booker. So the gentleman who stood on another person's head was Bill Watts and Bill Watts is actually about 6'10". So he is almost the same size as, as Grizzly Smith and he was the one who stood on the guy's head in tennis shoes. Jeez. <laughs> Fucking God. Uh-huh. Uh, the next lie was, uh, Cornette's phrase, uh, is a Shane phrase, predilection towards fornicating small farm animals. He did not say that is something I said. He's trying uh, to find one of those too. I, I saw uh-huh. yeah. This is the joy of this for me is that he and I are so similar because I have adopted many of his idioms. So there's enough of a, a you know, Through simulacrum line. there. Yeah. Uh, so. On to number six. Uh, Vince Russo is actually a booker that worked for WWE and is famed as one of the people who's ruined professional wrestling. So is not the gentleman. The gentleman who got uh, punched in the face by Bill Watts and had the guy stand on his head for punching Jim Cornette is just an unnamed individual. I just gave him the name of a famous professional wrestling personality just for shiggles. Because, again, if you know wrestling, you're going to know that's ludicrous. But neither of you are going to catch that. So, yeah. When was he, like, in his Russo was in the Attitude Era. He actually is one of the people who created the Attitude Era, if you believe him. He tried to pattern wrestling programming after Jerry Springer. So he was one of the main writers for WWF at the time. So, like, late 90s. Uh Uh-huh. So the stuff where they had, like, a person giving birth to a hand and, uh, you know, just ridiculous nonsense people dressed up as nuns and... It's a lot of that's Vince Russo. Okay. Because his last name did sound familiar, Uh but I wasn't exactly sure because I know when I was a child, my mom would still watch that stuff. Mm -hmm. So I don't know if I just picked it up and I had some sort of subconscious memory. I don't know. But it's his name sounded familiar. So uh, Vince Russo being uh, hit and Dusty Rhodes being named in the lawsuit didn't happen because that didn't take place here. So that gets us through seven. Um, and now, uh, number eight is, uh, Cornette being alleged to, uh, believed to have been inciting violence in the audience by wearing the dress and trying okay. to get the yeah. red-blooded American males to kill him. That was not brought up in the lawsuit. 
and then, uh, which is paired by line number nine, of course, that he was cross-dressing in, in uh, West Virginia, and that was dismissed by the judge as ludicrous. <laughs> And, uh, so, and then, uh, there's a, a subset here where I listed Dusty Rhodes again, but since he was not there, it's technically a continuation, but I counted it as the 10th lie. Okay. So anytime I was mentioning that, anything else that was listed is all a real event that took place. All of these things happened. They just didn't all happen at the same time or involving the same people. So technically I didn't lie about anything. I just said that they uh, used, you know, liquid cheese for their mozzarella. Right. Gotcha. Checks out. So there you go, friends. It's something different. Like I said, uh, it, it more caters to things I, I enjoy and love listening to and am fascinated by, but may not necessarily be the cup of tea for our audience, but, uh, you know, I'm trying things out as, as they occur. That's to what me. you gotta do. I mean, I have to say that that is a very strong start to season four. Oh, bless because we you. should be doing what we, I mean, Courtney put it pretty bluntly last week too. Like I'm, I have a captive audience. I'm going to talk about what I like mm-hmm. and that's, kind of what this show is about we're just talking about stuff that we like and we throw in some lies about it so yeah yeah it was a very good episode well i'm glad uh i do have a couple other things that is since i talked about being in the in the waning attention span i did uh discover uh a couple of uh, discussions about uh the assassination of american presidents that i decided to discuss And since Michael is a history buff, I imagine it will tickle your your taint a little bit there around the bottom. But also, realizing there have been more than, you know, one or two of the famed presidents who were assassinated and the circumstances surrounding the assassination of the lesser-known presidents, I figured would be interesting. The McKinley one, I think, is interesting um, based off of the very little I know. Mm -hmm. But that will be, ooh, I'm excited to hear about that. Yeah, I was interested. And then uh, the Stanley Hotel and its history also popped up. I was like, we haven't talked about that. And since we're such, you know, king or uh, king of files or constant readers, that might be something to get. So we're there. We got topics. I'll I'll, I'll find stuff. I just had to had to get my groove back, as it were. Well, you certainly did. Bless you. So take take heed. And give heed. Headed. If you're Take in headed. Give heed. Headed. Is that what the kids are calling you nowadays? Yes. Heated, headed, headed. Yes. You've been heated. You've been getting head. Give me that give me that heed, baby. <laughs> in the famous words of the American dream, death the road, the son of a plumber, go over here and give me this heed. <laughs> give me this heed, baby. Come on now. <laughs> Just like the WWE chart you. I got the ultimate warrior sucker. <laughs> no, I showed you this. Yes, yes, you did. Yes, yes. wait. Still, one is of that my Randy Road? No, that's the... Dusty Rhodes. Yeah, Randy Road. <laughs> well, uh, see interconnectivity. So Randy Rose was a member of the original Midnight Express. Ah, see, I can yeah. I can get us back to wrestling, guaranteed. It's like Kevin Bacon six, over here. Six degrees, yeah. <laughs> All right. Well, I think we've beaten this horse uh, long enough. It is still not my longest episode, which makes me very happy. Always uh, happy Congratulations. to skate Congratulations. <laughs> yes. Don't get too far afield. Love but, that uh, for you. Yeah. Uh, we hope that you all have had as much fun as I did this evening. I can't speak for my brethren here, but uh, at the very least, uh, I had a good time. So to hell with the rest of you. But if good you... for you. It was good for me. 
I had good. a good time. My, well, it was a good story. Uh, if you like more of this, of course, uh, obviously you can express it to us. You can like, subscribe, rate, and review. We would love to hear from you. And also go check out some of Cornette's Madness. They have uh, a significant slew of material on YouTube. It's bite-sized, easy to pick up, and you can see some of this stuff and hear him scream and curse proper because I didn't even do a, a good Jim Cornette accent doing the story. So it's uh, you need to, to listen to him. But... Uh, Obviously, we've got a link in the show notes below, so you can go check out all of our relevant socials. Be sure to check us out, because we've got uh, new episodes of the podcast winging your way every lovely Monday morning. In addition to stuff on the tubes of you, uh, Michael's just inundating us with shorts, then you will never get enough of them, I can guarantee it. And, of course, we have got Disinformed After Dark, which strikes us most every Wednesday. We've been in a good click here, so we're still going to keep that momentum going, I'm sure. In addition to our book talks, and a, a, a bevy of other materials that you can stay entertained with. So, you will not be lacking for entertainment with us around. Oh, no, no, no. Indeed. So I think that is going to officially wrap this thing up like a bandage around the head of a man who was beaten by Dusty Rhodes. Or Randy Rhodes. Or Randy Rose. Or Randy Savage. Because you're about to get me to the boiling point. Bring me the crap. All right. <laughs> so for the cream of the crop here this evening at the Disinformed Podcast, we're going to bid you a very fond farewell, and I'm going to say I hope something great happens to you this week, like being beaten about the head and shoulders with a tennis racket. Wouldn't it be and nice? So, indeed. Indeed. And for the Disinformed Podcast this week, I'm Shane. I'm John. And I'm Michael. And zippity zoop, we're out of here. Brother. Brother.